Oh, hey. Did it accept? It did. It finally did. I don't know what was going on. My computer's being very oh, I weird. I should get a microphone. Oh, we're serious. We mean it. We're not kidding. Well, I feel uh, as if I'm, I, I feel a little bit underprepared. That's okay. You wore a button-up shirt, so it, it counts. And I do mention, so you went to Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, They cool. renamed it uh, a slightly more stellar name, A.T. Still University. Ooh. But what do you it doesn't prefer? matter. You don't care either way? It, it's No. It's osteopathic medicine. So everyone stopped listening. It's not that <laughs> osteopathic. It's facts. It's <laughs> Nobody can spell it either. Oh, hi. You're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney, and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. So joining us via FaceTime while he's on call for the hospital, I'd like to welcome our guest, Dr. Nicholas Mayer. Nick is a nephrologist working on the front lines of the COVID-19 battle, but he didn't start out that way. His background includes various customer service jobs before the ultimate customer service job, patient care. Dr. Mayer graduated from the Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine in 2004. Dr. Mayer also works in St. Louis, Missouri, and specializes in nephrology, as I said. He's affiliated with St. Elizabeth's Hospital, SSM, and DePaul Health Center, Barnes Jewish Hospital, Missouri Baptist Medical Center, Dupre, I think, Hospital, or De Perez. How the hell do you say that? Deprez? No one, no one really knows. No one knows. It's, it's Missouri, so it's, I think it's Des Perez in Missouri. Des, Des Perez. Yeah. Okay, great. And Des Perez Hospital and SSM St. Mary's Hospital. He also currently has a four out of four out of five rating on WebMD, but a five out of five star rating on Google. So, you know, he's at least competent enough to let you know if you're dead or alive. I better know Nick from going to college with and living in Spain with his kid sister, Elizabeth. So Dr. Mary, you have to outdo your bio now. Tell me something I didn't say. And we're going to get into the COVID-19 stuff because of this time in history that it is, but that will be at the end. So for now, you have the floor, Dr. Mayor. Oh my gosh. <laughs> So, Are we going to use the doctor professionalism during the whole thing? Or do you want to like tone it down and just... No, that's it. Know. That's the last time I'm calling you doctor. That's the last time anyone's going to hear that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so where are you from and what got you into medicine? I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, I, for whatever reason, decided I wanted to be a doctor in like sixth grade. I think it was, uh, you know, on Friday night, they had uh, that series of TV shows. There was um, in the 80s, they had Golden Girls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Empty Nest. They had, uh, there was two others in there. And they were just, you know, they were at the time the best shows. Golden Girls still top five show. And um, Empty Nest was this pediatrician. And there was one episode that I, I saw, I'm like, that's it. He got the, uh, he diagnosed this kid who was dying of botulism because he figured out he, the kid ate the fish sticks that he loved out of the trash can when his mom oh my God. <laughs> wouldn't let him have the fish sticks. And uh, that was like, oh, that's it, you know? And the rest has been a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing lives up to TV. It's been a downhill, <laughs> downhill climb. Yeah. Oh, bless. Okay, so you, so you're from St. Louis. You decided because of the the glorious gift of television that you wanted to devote yes. your life and time. Everything I know is from television. Amazing. All history, you know. <laughs> Did you? Much. Does that include medical history? Like you learned some things from television about like how to help someone. Is there well, I learned about botulism from TV. Okay. Um, Anything else? Uh, <laughs> I learned how to uh, have a dramatic moment and um, scream a lot of things. I, in the, 
I, I haven't figured out how to do uh, Thor Academies in the ER like they do on the TV show. You know, That's everyone not seems to get their chest cracked every episode in the, <laughs> in the TV shows. I have not figured that one out. That's not something I've gotten with yet. But, you know, with time. With time. You'll, you'll, goals, really. Yeah. Just goals. Yeah. Okay, so you. Growing. <laughs> How many years would you say collectively that you spent in school educating yourself, not just on medicine, but did you ever do the math? Because some of my doctor friends have done the math and just thrown up in a bucket when they realized how much time they were in school. Well, are we are we including preschool or? Yeah, I think that <laughs> formed you. Sure, count it. <laughs> sure, <laughs> jackass. I guess like college uh, four years, uh, med school four years, uh, residency three years, and fellowship two years. So I guess that's eight plus five is what is that? Seven, 17, 17. <laughs> We're really smart. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So 13 so years in like higher education to get where you are. And yeah. Okay. And I took a year off. I didn't get into med school the first time I tried. And so I had a, a year off. And then when I finally found out I got in at the end of that year, a friend and I took my loan money I hadn't quite gotten yet and went traveling through Europe for two months. We went backpacking for two months through Europe. I don't know how I stretched the dollar this far, but I spent $4,000 in two months backpacking through Europe. That's it? That's it. And I think I spent most of that the first day when we landed in London. <laughs> oh my gosh, they'll get you there. Boy, that's yeah. an expensive city. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, my butt hurt after that. <laughs> oh, but it did. Okay, so you didn't get into med school the first time. Did you only apply to what, you, you said they changed the name to, what is it, ATC? It's no longer the Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine. What is it now? Yeah, I applied to allopathic and osteopathic schools, and I was more thinking family practice okay. when I went into med school. So, you know, no one was banging my door down anyway. It wasn't <laughs> like I had like this ridiculous resume, you know. So I was, you know, for med students, pretty average on my on my um, CV. And I was, I decided I wanted to go into family practice. So osteopathic made more sense. And then uh, once I got in there, I kept getting interested by the biochemistry with nephrology. So I kind of got stuck on that. And that's how I ended up being a kidney doctor. But the interesting thing is, uh, once someone gets advanced kidney disease, you kind of take over their care anyway. So I'm kind of a primary doctor for very advanced sick people. You know, it, it, so it kind of works out that way that I'm still basically family practice only for multi-organ system failure patients. Does that, so, do you find that that is satisfying even though it's sort of palliative care or is it, do you find that because can people recover more than they decline? You know, it's, you can, you can't get back, once tissue's scarred up, it's gone. So you can't get dead tissue back. You know, Frankenstein hasn't figured that out <laughs> yet, but um, we have... You can manage it, you know, so like if you manage the conditions, we don't have a, a lot of great tools in 2020, but we have pretty good tools. And if you use them well and you're and you're monitoring people kind of tightly, they can live a pretty good quality of life, even with advanced heart failure, even if they're on dialysis. The problem really turns out to be it's a, the surprising thing uh, is that it's really a head game. And a lot of the patients I have haven't decided to agree that they have a chronic disease yet, you know, oh. so they like will fight you or not agree to do things that if they did just agree that they have a, a disease and agree to accept therapy for that disease, they'd live much better than they often do. They're, they're skeptical or hesitant. They've, they've got all their this baggage they carry into the office with them, you know, post-traumatic stress from childhood abuse and untreated mood disorders and, you know, all the 
disenfranchised patients I take care of because CKD is a disease, chronic kidney disease is a disease of the impoverished, poor, disenfranchised. So there's all that baggage that goes into uh, getting someone healthy. It's getting them to uh, agree to work with you. It's, it's, a, it's surprising because you'd expect if someone's coming into my office, paying me a copay to be seen, that they would they, there would be an understanding when meeting them that they need help. And that's actually not kind of how it works out. So, so what is it that you find is the biggest resistance? They, besides you said, obviously accepting the overarching idea that they have a, a chronic illness. Is it you'll suggest take this medication twice a week or whatever it is or, you know, get out and exercise or whatever your, you know, recommended care plan is and they just don't do it? Well, like I'll take something that's pretty black and white like dialysis, you know. So we know that if you have renal failure, you need dialysis and we've been able to determine the bare minimum amount you can get and still not fail to thrive, which would be about three days a week if you're going to a center. And if you're uh, a go-getter and you want to live even better than that, you could do it at home. Most people People decide to do it in center because it's kind of what they fell into and they don't really feel like trying the thing that would keep them healthier, which would be doing dialysis at home. And a lot of times they don't agree to show up every day of the week or they sign off the machine early. They got their reasons, but their priorities are arguably wrong or they don't believe that if they don't get enough dialysis, they're actually going to get harmed by it. And they don't see that that hospitalization that came after three months of mistreatments was related to those mistreatments. They just say, well, I ate too much of this, when it was really an accumulated failure to thrive that resulted in their failure to thrive that they needed to come in the hospital, you know, and then you just circle the, the drain, one foot in, one foot out like that. And um, so, yeah, a lot of what I do is uh, education and reassurance and counseling, really. This, the medicine's the easy part. Mm. So. so do you find that the, the mental health side of this is something that you hadn't anticipated when you got into medicine, realizing, oh, I actually, like you just use the word counseling, that that's going to be a part of my care? Or was that part of residency where other doctors said, hey, listen, this is going to be a huge part of your care? No, there was no <laughs> getting us ready for any of that. They didn't talk about mental health? It's such an easy thing to discuss. I'm shocked. I think we had a two-week class on it. You know, <laughs> in in seventy two years of school, that that makes sense. It feels right. Sure, sure. <laughs> About two weeks of okay of that in there, and uh, yeah, I mean, in in academics, which is where you do a lot of your training, it's just this is psoriasis, this is sarcoid, this is the you know these are the treatments for that, and there's no so your patient's going to refuse to take the medicine, and then you have to you know there's none of this realistic medicine teaching. It's all you know my way or the highway. You know, I'm in the golden tower and you will do what we tell you because we are the doctor. And in and, and the way that goes about that works for about 15 minutes and then they they're like, you're not so smart. And they start wow. challenging what you have to say. Not all of them. And it's not that they're bad patients for doing it. It's just they come in with a lot more than they, a lot of my patients had to deal with a lot more than I ever had to growing up, and, and they, their lives are, uh, are, are far more challenging. I mean, right now we're having protests at night, mile or two from where I'm sitting for that reason, you know. So there's a lot of, a lot that goes into it, and, it, you know, I don't label them bad patients. It's just part of the job, and that's surprising, you know. Sure. And so do you think that there is sort of an economic distinction when it comes to renal failure sort of becomes the symptom of the larger problem of, as you said previously, like childhood oh, trauma? Yeah. That then, 
The number one and two reasons for renal failure, 45% of the time it's diabetes, 30% of the time it's hypertension, are diabetes and hypertension. And we know how to treat those things. And uh, people who don't treat those things end up with organ disease, like kidney disease. And so if you're not taking care of yourself, you end up with kidney disease. Well, people who are affluent or plugged in, for lack of a better term, know how to get medicine, follow with a doctor, and uh, keep themselves healthy. Whereas people who don't trust the healthcare system, people who don't have access to the healthcare system, people who don't have the money to pay for the things they need to do to maintain themselves, they don't take care of themselves, and they end up getting heart disease, kidney disease. So, you know, the system uh, doesn't support some people, and they end up with multi-organ disease. And so those are usually my patients, yeah. Yeah, because being able to not trust the healthcare system starts early when there is evidence as to, you know, why they can't trust it. So that makes that makes sense. Yeah, I think you, I th- what I, I there's definitely medical racism, but facts, uh, and, you hardcore know, facts. studies that show that the cardiac cath rate for people who walk in with uh, chest pain is less in African Americans than in Caucasian. There's studies that show it. But I think it's also just understood in in certain communities that they're not cared for as well. So a lot of people come in with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder or an understanding that they're getting, uh, you know, tested on because there actually were randomized trials on uh, minorities. Oh, eugenics is a uh, thing? What? Things like syphilis (laughs) or measles vaccines where people were not informed. So, I mean, you know, it's unfortunate. I, you know, it's a struggle to deal with these biases, but they're, they're the biases are based in uh, in a in a problem that happened, you know, before my time. But it, it's it's there, baked in. So so it's a reality. So what yeah. is we're going to get into a series of questions in a little bit. But what is like the worst thing that you is the worst thing as a doctor burying a patient that you know could have been saved, or is the worst thing as a doctor? the game of resistance that you then have to sort of fight to be able to get this patient to want to live? Oh, well, the worst thing is a doctor is screwing up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're an empath. (laughs) It's inevitable. Um, You know, everyone's imperfect and you do your best, but there are times where, you know, you you, uh, take a right when you could have taken, you should have probably taken a left or you decide to do something when waiting on your hands would have been a better play and Hindsight is what tells you whether you were right or wrong. And, uh, you know, if you find that you really harm somebody, you know, that sucks. You know, there's not really uh, anything worse than that. I I can't when it comes to like patient outcomes, um, I'm always rooting for my patients. But you accept that they the options are limited with whatever it is you have to work with and um, with, with their disease and with the tools you have. It's not my decision what they do. All I can do is educate them about their problems they have, inform them, and, and give them options if they want to be aggressive or options if they want to be conservative. And uh, if the plan falls apart, it's my job to continue to pick it back up. If things go bad and uh, someone does very terribly, it sucks, but... You know, if you took it to heart every time, you'd be a mess, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, and the other thing is, like, if you're going to take, this is something you learn early on, too. If you're going to take uh, credit for if people do well, then you also have to take credit for if they do badly. Unless you're a complete hypocrite and you only take the one. <laughs> but, you know, uh, so, like, you can't, you, you, if you're wise and you're doing this, you're not going to uh, take anything, whether it go, things go well or poorly, personally, uh, as something you did, because 
if you did, you'd be a damn wreck. And I think that's why a lot of you get a lot of angry da- doctors or they, they do take it personally and um, you, they want control when you can't have it, you know. How do you steel yourself to that? Like, how have you been able to not take things personally or not take it all to heart? Well, I don't know. I, I would assume like most you uh, do the wrong thing until the school of hard knocks beats you up enough that you do the right thing. <laughs> so it was beaten out of you. Your brother said yeah, something similar about med school. Yeah, Life has been endlessly difficult to me. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Dr. Mayor. No, I said I lied. I, yeah, I used doctor again. Okay. Yeah. So then just real quick back to your, to your sort of bio. So you're from St. Louis. What made you want to practice medicine continually in St. Louis? Like, cause you know, you have family members that adventure the world. So what made you choose to stay in your hometown? Well, you know, I, when I was, uh, I went away to college in Kansas city and uh, then I went to med school and I found like every two day weekend I had, I was driving either to St. Louis or Kansas City. And so when I was looking for a residency, I thought to myself, I better pick a place where I'm going to end up being on the weekends. So I had to look, I, I applied to both Kansas City and St. Louis and I landed in uh, St. Louis. And so that's why I'm here. You right know? on. Okay. I think St. Louis just gets you stuck. You know, you just, you get stuck here. Did you grow up here? No, I just in went to college. Place? Just college. Yeah, no, Just I college. Yeah. But I'm, I grew up yeah. in Cincinnati and it's a similar, very sister cities. They're very similar setups. Yeah. You so. just get, you, you can't get away. No, yeah. I don't know what it is. It's just <laughs> terrible, isn't it? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Every Listen. time I go to California, like San Francisco, <laughs> it's like, why would I ever not live here. This is great. And then all of a sudden by like uh, day five, I have no money. And yeah. So, I was just going to say, cause you have 17 <laughs> children and a wife. And so like, I don't know how you would be able to afford it. God love you. I'm sure they'd welcome you with open arms, but yeah, it's the cost of living. That'll yeah. get you. <laughs> okay. So you, so married kids, families, you guys are going to, your, your roots are in St. Louis. You're sticking around there. You like practicing medicine there. There's not really, there's not a change as far as that goes on your horizon. I uh, know. Okay. I don't think so. Unless, you know, the shit goes down. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. We're in the Old Old Testament times right now. Hello. Welcome to Hello 2020. Murder. I'm I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. They're due. Apparently mosquitoes are coming in with now with, I don't know, all sorts of stuff too in California. I was like, oh boy, here we go. Okay. Laser guns. (laughs) I mean, we need them. (laughs) Okay. We hope you enjoyed your apps, guys. We're going to take a quick break and get onto the entrees after the break. We are now back. Nick is making fun of me because of the way that I do this very professional podcast. And now we are on to the <laughs> shut up. And now <laughs> shut up. And now it is on to the entrees. Okay, so this is the speedy speed round of questions. This is about your work history in general. Because like I said at the very end, we're gonna try and dive in. We have a limited time with Nick because it's weird that he's like saving lives on the weekend, but I guess that's what you gotta do. So whatever. So I'm trying to speed through this. Okay. What was your first job ever, ever, ever? And it can be like mowing lawns or babysitting or whatever, but what were oh, you? Oh yeah, I had the I had my neighborhood cornered on uh, lawn. <laughs> Oh, my yeah. uncle was one of those uh, hoarders that would take every piece of uh, machinery someone left in front of their house and pull it into the basement. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you'd walk in the basement, you'd get high on fumes, you know, refrigerator <laughs> oh. parts oh, and yeah. everything. <laughs> so he, he, I bought a lawnmower off of him. He charged me more than market value for this. You gotta be <laughs> And, uh, God I love had, family. <laughs> so I had to work hard to like pay that thing off. <laughs> I'll bet you did. So I had how- about, uh, I had about 11 to, I, 
think I peaked out at 20 yards at one point. How are you? How? In the middle of the summer, you were just doing 20 lawns? Well, I wanted one of those new, back in the day that they had the new Macintosh, right? Okay. With the mouse. Yeah. And um, I wanted one of those and they cost $2,000. So I had to work my ass off to get $2,000. And um, I'm I'm a bit of control freak. So as soon as I had the money, I was about ready to buy the thing. My parents went ahead and bought one for the family and totally <laughs> ruined your game. Me. I had to share it with my sisters and my brother. <laughs> it was terrible. Worst idea ever. Okay. How many customer service jobs have you had? And I definitely would include being a doctor as customer service. You can count. It's okay. So there was that and like babysitting and okay, that's two. pool boy. Pool boy. Can't forget pool boy. Three. Lifeguard. You were cabana boy. Okay. Cabana uh, boy. I I worked at a pasta house. You know about I that. I do. And we're going to get into that um, story. That's four. I had, uh, I worked at um, a, I was a gopher for a construction con- uh, group and gophers are a fun place to be because the, uh, I was, I'd spend a lot of time in the van with the owner and then I'd spend a lot of time with the construction crew <laughs> so you without heard- the owner. <laughs> and I heard everyone's <laughs> shit. Everyone talked about each other and Oh my god, it was it was terrible. Like, like you know, the, the the owner would be like, "What the hell's wrong with them?" And then I'd talk, sit with the construction crew while we're at. They'd take me out to the VFW to get shots of whiskey at lunch, <laughs> whatever the hell's degenerate <laughs> shit they were doing. Like, I can't, he doesn't understand us. It was great. <laughs> oh, I love it. See, that's actually where you learned how to do counseling then, because you were yeah. listening to both sides of the argument. So that's actually I, I can't. I just shut up for Good. a solid two summers and did no your and did your shots. I, I just absorbed it. You know, <laughs> you took I it just, all in. Okay, yeah, now just, we're so we're up to five jobs if you include um, the gopher. Then, uh, after that. Plasma bank. When I was pledging med school, I worked at a plasma bank. I could have taken a job after I graduated from college with a degree, (laughs) but uh, no, at a place that would have paid me money. But um, for whatever reason, it looked better to have stood around people who were selling their plasma (laughs) for money um, because I used a needle uh, as a phlebotomist. So that that was a fun year and that there were a lot of interesting people there independence avenue in kansas city i believe it oh i had to stay there actually on my drive out to ohio and uh whoo that's uh that's a special part of the world (laughs) it's they don't have uh you don't have a lot of plasma banks on rodeo drive no no definitely no (laughs) (laughs) okay so we're six and then would you so obviously being um, a doctor took a little break for about about nine years from working and uh then uh (laughs) i started up here in uh, 2009 okay so a grand total of seven that's a fair amount of customer service jobs and you are currently employed as a customer service worker all right cool what is this like the last straw that got oh no actually let me go back what's your favorite of all of those jobs <laughs> some days i'm not sure okay that's okay um, and this is a tricky I, question because you're in it i kind of have to drink the kool-aid that this is the one okay um and that i'm neat I'm, I'm i'm just completely too feed in on this so okay. <laughs> yeah I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to say doctor <laughs> okay be the one I'll stick with. okay what's your least favorite of all of those <laughs> i mean it has to be the gopher you know, the gopher, if you take pay out of it, the thing that probably, the job that probably sucked the most was lawnmower boy. You know? Oh, it's I hot. Mean, yeah. Yeah. It sucked. Okay. I believe that. Gopher had a, got a lot of good stories. Fair. Know? Fair enough. Okay. Um, what's the weirdest? My favorite. Oh, um, yeah. Tell I got to tell you this. Yeah. Story. Tell me. There tell was me. a ex-Navy SEAL 
who uh, used to pick me up in the morning at 7.30 to take me to wherever we're going because he lived not too far. And he ne- I never should have let this guy drive me because he'd, <laughs> but he'd pick me up and he'd already be halfway done with a six-pack. Jesus! And, um, you know, he's a rail thin. He was a Delta Forces guy who was in the Middle East in the mid-80s. And, you know, I found out later that he had uh, been court-martialed for hanging his superior officer from his ankles. Holy shit. um, they lost his paperwork, so he got out after about two years in the brig. But he had some demons. And one time, I'm just like, what the hell? Why why do you drink so much, you know? And uh, it was this awkward long pause, and then he said, you know, you never forget the faces of those you killed. <laughs> oh, too real. You had to use, well, it's probably too much for your little podcast. But, you know, anyway. No, say it. No, you got to finish. I, well, he's, he said uh, after that, he said at one time I had to put a kid's head on a pike as a warning to the others. Not you know, much older than you. And uh, like, okay. so I, I, I just <laughs> kept myself pressed against the door. Prayed. <laughs> Talked to God directly and said, yo, if you get me out of this, I'll be cool. I'll Can be a doctor. Beer. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> okay. So, so I, I got to meet him. Okay. Know? Cool. 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 So it wasn't the worst job ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's the weird military? I couldn't do any of that. Yeah. Thank I mean, God we're safe from people like with people like that out there, but listen, I used yeah. to live with Navy SEALs and it did not end well. So God bless them. They're doing work I couldn't do, but nobody gets yeah. out of that unscathed. Okay, great. Um, what's the weirdest thing you've been asked to do whilst on the clock or like has been asked of you or, uh, I mean, disimpact an old person. Okay, great. <laughs> so for people that don't work in medicine, that means remove the poop from an old elderly <laughs> human. Okay, I think I think you got another one in you that you can tell us. I know we have limited time, but like, is there anything else weird that you've been asked to do? Because <laughs> like, as a doctor, um, that's not exactly like. I mean, although it isn't yeah. exactly your job, but I don't know. Like, I'd have to th- I'd have to think about that. You okay, can, you, you want come to back edit to that? that in later. I, I I don't know. I mean, well, I can think of yeah. one. I can think of one story that we could tell now if you want. So Nick briefly told me the story of the pasta house where he saved a choking woman. He saved her oh, life. Yeah. No one asked me to do that. Yeah, so. no one knew she was choking, which yeah. is crazy to me. So could you please tell that story? When I was at the pasta house, which it's no longer there, but uh, it was in the fancy mall in St. Louis. And uh, What's the fancy mall's like name? Frontneck Plaza. Frontneck. What up, Nelly? Highest, you know, the highest real estate in St. Louis. Um, anyway, they uh, it's this mom and pop kind of uh, Italian restaurant right outside of Neiman Marcus there in the mall. And um, this uh, old cup, this uh, old guy, Brett, has even older mother in every like Thursday afternoon at three for soup and sandwich. And, it, you know, I guess he was just doing his job as a son to sh- you know show her a good time or whatever but they would usually <laughs> just eat in total silence and the guy Aww. looked like a bore anyway you know and, and um <laughs> i was the only one working between lunch and uh, the dinner shift so i i had him in the one other table i had you know and i left the manager's office with a light bulb i was supposed to be fixing because you know that's how cool they were and they had me doing all the maintenance too and <laughs> I walk out and I see the woman was coughing right next to a group of people who were waiting for their shift to begin near the front desk. And uh, she started to turn a color. 
And it's hard for me to notice color because I'm colorblind. So when I notice color, it's not good. Oh, wow. So I got down there and uh, I asked them, is she choking? And everyone looked at me like I did. They didn't know what I was talking about. And she was choking. So I had to pull her out and give the Heimlich. And she coughed up this thing that looked like an owl pellet into the oh, table. God. So I thought, you know, now I'm going to get a, a, a decent, I might actually get a decent tip, you know. Because <laughs> you said he it. averaged, he gave you a dollar, right? You know, it's about a dollar, you know, at that time, a <laughs> soup and sandwich was about $5. So the bill would be about 12 and he'd give me the, he'd round down to $1. So um, <laughs> it left and I looked at it and it was uh, $2. Woo! I got $2 that day. For it's saving his dollar. mom's life. That's so for nice. For saving his mom's life. And I'm, and I'm like, healthcare is going to pay off. <laughs> <laughs> and that's about what you get tipped now. Um, when yeah. you say colorblind, do you like, does that being able to not see the difference between like red and green or can you literally see no colors at all? Yeah, it's, it's red and green. Yeah, so, that my like, dad had I'm that. Looking in someone's uh, ear or their throat, I have to kind of rely on the texture more than the color. You know, that's so gnarly. I see, like I, I can see solid red and solid green, but I really can't see like the the, sh- the shades, shades. You know, like sure. salmon is a hard color for me. You know, sure, that's so fascinating. <laughs> okay, so you saved someone's life, so that was that was great. Um, was there an incident in any of these jobs where a customer asked to speak with your manager? Well. I mean, as a doctor, I get reported occasionally by unhappy nursing or staff, and I have to uh, deal with that headache. But okay. that's, that's just part of, if there's someone who can possibly be unhappy, they have the opportunity to report that to people who have no choice but to investigate. I, got a, I had a patient send a letter to the Board of Healing Arts in Missouri on me. Now, they have to send you the letter. And since you reported the Board of Healing Arts, you have to take it seriously. I got this letter. This is by a way by a patient who um, had no dialysis unit because he was so terrible at the dialysis units. He came once brandishing a gun. He got fired from every dialysis unit. He had no dialysis unit. The only way he could survive is to show up to the ER two times a week. Wow. And so for four years, I took care of this guy two or three times a week. And every time I almost got him a different situation, like I got him enrolled for a kidney transplant or I got him into a dialysis unit, he'd do some belligerent thing to screw it up so he didn't have to change his situation. Wow. I don't know what it was exactly why he was upset, but he he fired me and wrote a letter to the Board of Healing Arts. And this letter had all kinds of exclamation points and half sentences and... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, he he cussed in writing. I mean, you're typing this letter to the Board of Healing Arts. You type in fucking, you know. (laughs) Yeah, you can delete that. You don't. (laughs) You don't. And and he was uh, both a reverend and a doctor. Sure. uh, Per him. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. That was an interesting one. But so yeah, wait, what did the letter say? I probably have it somewhere in here, but it basically, I, I think it just devolved into anger, I think. And then the thing is, I had to just, I had to like respond. So I had to like get preferences and stuff. Oh it was just God. such a waste of time, you know? Now, is the Board of Healing Arts someone that can decide whether or not you keep your licensing as a doctor? Yeah, that's what's at stake. They threw it out immediately, but they have to listen, you know? Sure. And, and they have, you know, reasonable people would have never taken any of that seriously but you don't know you know you just get this certified letter in the mail and all of a sudden now you have to respond to it so i would be terrified so when is what's an incident that would make a nurse like report you or oh do you have to go you got um do you mind not at all and i'm getting a give me one second yeah yeah this is what happens when someone's a doctor that the do you do not have to apologize for being a doctor you can probably edit all that 
I will. Couldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't have to worry about that at all. Yeah, okay. yeah. Thank you, though. Let me for... tell you what you could do. <laughs> oh, please explain it to me. I don't understand. Um, no, I appreciate that. Um, are you good? Because I don't want to like rob you of. Yeah, of time. no. It was just a. It turned out just to be a small question. It wasn't anything. Important. Okay, great. What is something that a nurse would report you for, or would make you have to respect? Like, why would a nurse get mad at you? Oh well, you know there. There's a lot of, uh, in a, in a, at a given time in the day, I might be pulled in three directions. A nurse might have, might have a team of six patients and being pulled in several directions. So it's just a job, you know, any, anything in, uh, healthcare, especially in the hospitals, there's just a, a lot of, uh, reasons you can be, uh, stressed out, anxious, frustrated, all that. And so, Sometimes uh, I may not uh, exactly mesh well with the person I'm working with and they get upset, you know, it's like any other job, right? Sure. You know, okay. get upset only, you know, if someone, you know, at a, at a restaurant, uh, you might have to go and talk to the manager in a hospital system, you get, you have to go through a formal process or you know, I'm sure if you worked at Boeing or Edward Jones or any of these other places, there'd be some process too. It's just sure. like that. Okay. Well, this this is actually my favorite question to ask you because I've asked this of everyone, but like it's kind of it's it's way more exciting for you uh, or to ask a doctor. How many bodily fluids have been on your person whilst you were working a job? <laughs> <laughs> all so, of them? <laughs> one assume? of the yeah, I'd say all but maybe one. Okay. Um, so far, uh, I had uh, one of the perks about being a kidney doctor is that I really don't have to get my hands that dirty. I just I'm more of an analyst and I look at everything and I put a medicines together. The people who do the things are the surgeons and the intensivists and the ER doctors and the nurses. So like I, I get to sit back and watch everyone else uh, suffer. Um, <laughs> okay. The last time I really got my hands that dirty was in training, you know, and in training, when you're doing ICU rotations, a lot of times they'll just uh, kind of, you'll be it. They'll, you'll be like uh, starting your second year residency and they're like, well, you're, it's yours now. We're all going home and uh, oh here God. you are. And uh, <laughs> here's one intern who doesn't know anything to help you. So, uh, you know, terror is probably the best way to describe <laughs> <laughs> that situation. And, okay. uh, you know, so yeah, and in, 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 in that situation, uh, you get all the fluids you want. What's the only fluid that you, you said all but one? What's the only fluid that oh, hasn't been um, on you? I'd probably say semen would be the one I haven't seen. Oh, I didn't even think about that as a fluid. Yeah. Oh, interesting. You are so, a doctor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Have you been have you been puked on? Oh yeah. Like multiple I've been, times? I've, I've had I've had to go home because I got someone blew up all over me from the back end of you know. Oh. Yeah. How does that not make you get sick? Because my immediate, if I smell vomit, I vomit. There's no in between. Yeah, I just retreat to my happy place in my head. <laughs> in position. Cry, know. all those things. Okay, great. Uh, what's the weirdest customer service job you've ever had? I would assume being a doctor. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, the, the, the thing is, it's not just the patient care. You got the business aspect to it and um, you got interpersonal relate. You got to manage an office and, you know, there's uh, all these, uh, there's continuing education. You got to, I mean, there's the lobbying at, at the state and um, national level for yourself. I mean, it's just like an infinite number of things you got to do all the time. It just, uh, that was also not in the brochure. 
would be nice if they would have had all that out there uh, in the in orientation. Brochure. You would have been like, oh no, yeah, no, just no. straight up. You know, yeah, they would have uh, really maybe maybe I'd, maybe I would have uh, stayed in uh, contract contract work, <laughs> being a gopher forever. Okay, yeah. do you tip? Do I tip? Yeah. Of course. Okay, what's your twenty percent every time? Do you really? Yeah. Even if you get bad it's service. It's arbitrary anyway. 15, 20, like, you know, are you going to give, am I teaching someone a lesson if I give them one less dollar, you know? Oh. Like, this pizza was late. People are punitive. <laughs> I mean, that is what they think that they're making a stand or they're saying, you know, keeping a stand against the system that we shouldn't have to fund your life. And it's like, okay, well, that's just the system. So help. <laughs> okay. Um, you have to order the pizza either. Yeah. You know? Facts. Also true. Um, when you worked at a tipped position, were you ever stiffed? Yeah. I chased two people out to the street, the parking lot. Oh, tell me that story. Oh, well, there's not much of a story. I chased them out to the parking lot. Because like, they didn't like they didn't tip you or they didn't pay for their bill? They they left before paying. Okay, so the, one they time st- they left before paying. The other time, they uh, I, after leaving the bill, they left without paying. And I took it out. And they always said the same thing. Oh, I, I thought I we thought paid. we I thought we threw down some money. Yeah, yeah. But. yeah. I, the job is like actually really good education to work in a restaurant. I mean, I would that that was you know one of the precursor jobs I had because you know it puts you in that mindset that you want to uh, take on more tables. You want you know you're mm-hmm. working for your income. Uh, you know if you don't push or promote yourself within the restaurant, you know all that stuff. You get you get all those like soft lessons. I agree. Um, I think they should make everyone do a year of service either you know after after uh, high school before college everyone should do a year of service to either you know something like the military or something like uh, Greenpeace or something and then they should work at a restaurant I <laughs> totally to agree I've said it a hundred times yes before. I think we'd all have a lot less problems with each other if we did that before we went into college you know, I, like a mandatory two-year I totally agree you know. and when you real quick with the pasta house job would they make you pay for the bill of people who didn't pay was that the policy of the restaurant if you had a table that walked out were you responsible for it i guess i never found out because i always caught them good job they were pretty loosey-goosey about the rules like the the the, my manager at the time was one of the there's three founders of that place that chain that restaurant chain and um one of the main guy's sons were there so he treated it kind of like a like it he had full contact waiting you know you'd be carrying a, a tray of dishes and you'd get checked. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no, thanks. And he thought it was funny. I mean, it, it was a really fun job to have. But, uh, you know, no one who didn't have his dad as the owner could get away with the shit he did as a manager. It was, oh, of course not. You know. Okay. And so, then I'm just trying to speed through this. So you, uh, worst customer, but maybe the guy that wrote that letter or do you have a different example? Yeah. Yeah, okay. that guy. He was a jerk. I'll with that. Okay. Yeah. So now we're going to get on to the good stuff. We hope you guys saved room for dessert. Speedy round of questions. Shut up, Nick. What is the best customer you've ever interacted with? It's hard to say. I have a lot of uh, a lot of my really grateful patients that mm. you know you see. They're just they're lovely to see. You look forward to seeing them. You know, you 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 have a kind of a weird relationship in that you're constantly there to offer advice. But outside of that, there's still space to have this uh, very personal relationship with them. And I look at them as friends more than oh, I love that. You know, yeah. uh, you know, like a, a just my patient. You know, there's a lot of people come in and you know who that what they do for a living who they are about their family but they're not like it's not like a personal relationship you know i'm very intimately in a in a certain way but you know it's not these aren't people i'd go have a beer with but some of these patients are just uh, lovely i get christmas cards you know, Aww. So. 
Okay. And what's the nicest thing one of those customers or any customer that, or patient, I should say, what's the nicest thing any of them have done for you whilst you were working? I don't know. I, I guess a card goes a long way. You know, yeah. just a little simple card. You know, I got a stack of them over here. If I'm having a really shitty day, I'll go look at it. You know, that's that's about all I need. I like, you know, there's uh, you can't tip in uh, medicine. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the rumor is you guys are all millionaires. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Okay. What's the best lesson? I, I think oh, actually, uh, on that note, like I actually think um, last year I hit my break-even point. You know, you go into <laughs> so much debt with um, school. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I, I graduated med school with about a quarter million in debt. Oh and then my on god! Top of that, I was in uh, training. You know, the, the five years I was in training, I wasn't paying on that, so it was just accruing interest. So, uh, oh my god! And then you know, you move out and you get a like everyone else, you get a house. I started my first, I got my first real paycheck at 32. Most people had already been working for 10 years. Wow. By then, you know? And uh, so I actually think last year I hit my break even point. If I like liquidated everything, yeah, I'd have z- net zero. So you, wow, geez, is that true for most people that go through med school? Like that would be around the age if they paid it for it themselves? Yeah, it's getting worse though, because, you know, I think med school, it, the med school cost is going up alongside the undergraduate cost. Yeah. You know? And the cost, and, yeah. it's and cost like of living a is going up. in demand. Anyone who wants to be a doctor has to climb over, you know, 10 other bodies to get in, into it. So, you know, they don't have to reduce their prices. Yeah, they're, um, and they're, the government will guarantee any loan you want, you know. So. Yeah, because you're going to pay it back. What's the best lesson you've learned from working in customer service? Yeah, probably that you get more with honey than you do with, uh, Vinegar. how's the saying go? More, more, than, more flies than with fi- yelling at someone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's the adage. Stop yelling at people. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then last question this round, what's one piece of advice that you would give to cut to like patients that interact with doctors? What's something you would say that has been, that would sort of flip if they're feeling maybe combative with them or if they are getting bad news and they're upset, like what's something that you would say turns you as a doctor? doctor into like, not that you need to change and see their perspective, but what's just like a piece of advice that you would give to a patient? I don't know. I, I think, you know, whenever you have those negative, anyone has these negative feelings and this goes for pretty much anything. You got to just realize that, uh, the person you're interacting with woke up so that they could try to do the best they could that day, you know, and they may not be able to devote as much to the component of their life that is medicine because they're going through a divorce or their kid's sick or something, but they're trying their best. And so a bit of patience and um, kindness and understanding goes a long way there. I, I think a lot of people um, have a narrative in their head that they bring to a some kind of a uh, interaction that when it doesn't go well, you could probably deconstruct things and say this was about more than just whatever the hell it is you're talking about, you know. And and part of that assumption they bring is that someone's screwing them or that someone isn't trying or something like that, you know. Yeah. So. Uh, now we spoke. Okay, so thank you for that. That was the that was your desserts, folks. And so <laughs> when we spoke last week, and what triggered me um, wanting you on the podcast is not anything other than the COVID connection, because I don't I think you're worthless on this podcast. But I'm I'm using you <laughs> for your COVID connection. Okay. So one of the things I said I was going to bother you about was you know you mentioned the hardest part of working with COVID nineteen patients. I won't say it for you, but you mentioned what was really hard with it. And are you able to speak to that? Because I think people are I think people are forgetting the severity of it because now we've been in it for so long and I think you know because you're on the front lines and having to deal with the customer service piece of reminding people that this still is terrible and it still is something to take seriously 
What's the hardest part from a medical perspective that you're seeing with these patients? Well, you know, I guess I, I could go a lot of ways with this, but like just from taking care of these patients in the hospital when they crash in, um, you know, about 20% of people who get this virus, 80% do fine. They, they might have a bad week or so, but they, they handle it okay. 20% do pretty bad bad enough that they might even need to come in the hospital. And they describe this infection like the very worst inf infection they've ever had in their life. You know, it's not like it's a one week out. It's It could be, you know, two to eight weeks of lost work uh, and lost and therefore lost income. It is a it is a serious infection. A lot of people like to quote the, the death rate. Oh, it's less than 1%. And, uh, oh, you know, it's only nursing home patients. And no. It's not just nursing home patients, but it's um, it's also I've I've seen forty five year olds die of this. So there is a mortality rate, but even though the mortality rate is kind of low, especially if you're under fifty, it's still a serious infection, you know, and it, it might have permanent damage to your brain and lungs as a result. I don't want it, you know. I, I can't. Um, I think the <laughs> I think the the idea that it's okay to get this is just overlooking that simple thing that this is serious. The problem when these people do get sick enough to come in the hospital, about um, a quarter of them or 30% of them end up getting so sick that they end up going into multi-organ system failure in the ICU. And when that happens, their likelihood of survival is, you know, it's it's not great. It, you know, anywhere between 30 and uh, 90% die. And uh, when they, every day you show up, this is probably what you're, the question you were getting to. Every day you show up to see these people who are, you know, barely alive in the ICU with all the support we have to offer. It's the same damn thing. Every day for weeks, you go in every day, it's the same damn thing. The guy isn't off the ventilator any better than he was the day before. Still requiring asinine amounts of sedation and um, medicines to treat the shock. Only now you have a heart arrhythmia or a new infection that developed or they've got blood clots to the lung now or whatever. There's always another thing. They'll be, you know, they'll have been just barely surviving for two weeks. And that's when they have the arrhythmia that they almost died from. And then you bring them back. We've had several that you finally, after three weeks in the ICU, and, you know, it's when you're seeing one of these people, you're sitting with their chart for about 30 to 45 minutes going through every line of labs, every imaging test. It's an, it's an insane amount of stuff trying to talk to people to get the story that isn't in the notes in the computer. You, you, you really do all this work. And at the end of all that, you say, continuous as we're doing, or, oh, we discovered that this white count's worse. There might be another infection. You know, it's just the, the babysitting of these uh, people who are just trying to, that are on the verge of death the whole damn time, they finally get better after three weeks. They go out to the floor. A lot of them come right back within a few days of an opportunistic infection they got while they were in the hospital. And a lot of them after that die. There was a, a patient we all took care of at uh, one of the hospitals I go to. He was transferred out after a month and a half, trach and pegged to a long-term care facility so he could slowly learn to breathe on his own again. And after he was there for two days, he died. Oh, bless. Six weeks of work. Count, I can't imagine how many people spent time. And it's not like, well, what was the point or anything like that? It's just that is what drives the healthcare professionals batty about taking care of these people. It's just you're there's just no progress, you know. And so that's why I, I, I don't know. I, I never got to a point of despair with this. Um, 
but there are some a lot of physicians that have committed suicide. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would imagine that the reason was that they just felt like this was, the whole thing was kind of hopeless, you know. You never know, though. They might have had a lot of other stuff going on, and this wasn't the main thing. But, sure. you know. It be a tipping that point. Was my, that's my main thing about it. Yeah. So everyone wants to open up, which I think is a reasonable thing to do. But when you hear people just kind of talking casually about it like it's not a big deal, and if you get it, so what? I, I just um, don't know how to help them understand that they're wrong, you know. And does that um, make you feel like you wouldn't, for example, so Lake of the Ozarks was just in the news for the Memorial Day big party that they had. And the argument that I'm seeing from a lot of people is, see, we got no new cases from there. And when I talked to you, you had suggested that not only is that not true, but we're still still not out of the incubation period from Memorial Day weekend to know if anybody did catch it. Is that yeah. accurate? I mean, I've been to those places. I have never seen it that busy. Same. I don't know. Like, Same. It like a, something out of spring break in the 90s. Or yeah, it something. looked like and Vegas like, pool party. It was massive. Yeah, it was, I've never. So anyway, the thing is, this thing doesn't really start to cause a fever until at least five days, if not two weeks. So you're not really sick. You could be shedding the virus, but you're not really sick for a week or so after. And and you you could be you could it could be two weeks. So the people at that pool weren't the ones who are probably going to get sick enough to come into the hospital. So they're going to go home and, and spread it to other people. And they're the people they spread it to are probably going to be the ones that get people sick enough that they come in the hospital. So you got you know say fourteen plus fourteen twenty eight days. Twenty eight days after that is when you're going to expect to start to see some stuff. There have been a lot of positive cases in the middle of Missouri as a result of that. One of them, a story I heard, and this is, I don't know if this is true, but this is what I've heard from uh, other healthcare professionals. There was a a hairdresser who um, had gotten it uh, at that party and she refused to wear a mask. So she had interacted with at least 150 people. What, you know, by the time she finally found out she had it, you know, my office, we all wear masks. So the transmission rate when you wear masks is virtually nothing. So if someone's infected and everyone's wearing a mask, no one else will probably get it. But my receptionist, her husband's a, a nurse at uh, the downtown Barnes Academic Hospital, and he tested positive Friday. So she never had a fever yet, but she might have it. She has to quarantine now for 14 days. So you just don't know who has it until long after they've they've gotten the infection. Oh, I just say that's why it's this is so difficult. There's an information problem. The, the, the tests we use are by day five, about 30-something, 40% sensitive. By day seven, maybe a day after the fever, uh, they're about 70, 65% sensitive. So they're... It's about a coin toss in the earlier stages whether you're actually going to test positive if you have it. You know, the testing we have isn't good until you're actually very sick. Is it sort so, of moot then? I mean, you can't just test every like you. You'd be better off to test people after they have a fever, mm. but you can't just go and and test like a whole swath of people and expect everyone who's infected to turn up positive. They have done tests in. Um, Washington State, where they took a maternity ward and just tested everyone, and a surprising number of asymptomatic women tested positive, and who uh, some of them later had symptoms, but many of them didn't. You know, so it's it's uh, out there more than we know, um, and it can be airborne. They took uh, air samples from rooms in Nebraska where people were convalescing with this acute illness and uh, two-thirds of the air samples were positive for the virus. So you can, you know, when people are really sick, it it can become airborne, you know. 
So does it? And I think that's part of the way how these churches uh, spread it so well. I, I believe that when people are singing, they're vibrating their vocal cords so greatly that they're aerosolizing this and making it an airborne virus, not a water droplet virus. So oh. it doesn't matter if you're wearing a mask or not at that point. Um, so it doesn't. That's what I was going to ask. So it, it doesn't. Well, it, it does and it doesn't. I think it's, it's, it's a droplet spread infection. So masks will work 100% of the time if everyone's wearing them then. But if you somehow aerosolize the water droplets in your throat, to, it, it will then become airborne for a period of time. And things that can do that would be intubating somebody or doing... Um, very high pressure airway management, but also I believe, and I, I haven't, there's no study that has proven this yet, but I believe singing, uh, maybe, maybe sneezing really hard, uh, you know? So, and if it's airborne, you can walk through the airspace of someone who's, who was there a uh, half hour before and catch this, you know? Jesus. So what, so what makes you hopeful then? So like, what is it, obviously, if, you know, we keep washing our hands, wearing masks and just keeping our fingers crossed, like what makes you hopeful? Because we're all scared of the second wave of this or some, I shouldn't say we're all, but some people are scared of the second wave. So what makes you hopeful as a physician when people are not? sort of following the rules or you go out and you're like, cool, nobody's in a mask. I guess all my work is for not when you're putting your life at risk literally every day. What keeps you going, like fills your tank? I uh, I actually don't really feel like I'm putting my life at risk because I follow the two rules, which are I wash my hands and I wear a mask. <laughs> so it's <laughs> actually, I, I don't really feel like I'm in uh, any kind of danger. I'm also, as I said before, I, I, I'm a priss. I don't get my hands that dirty. You know? so, <laughs> right. um, so there's that. And then, um, you know, hopeful, I know this will end up passing one way or another. You know, the, the only reason we're opening up really is that uh, we have rooms at the ICU. That Like the decision to um, open things up wasn't because it's resolved. It's because we could we, we have room in the ICUs for you people when you get sick again. And so, you know, if we have another surge and we need to, you know, what this tired term, flatten the curve and all yeah. that. I mean, you're just basically trying to make sure that people don't die because they couldn't get medical attention, you know? Sure. Um, so, you know, okay. we're wide open, it seems now, yeah. uh, because we have plenty of rooms at the end. And, you know, I, I think it eventually one way or the other it'll pass although there's been nothing to prove this it, i believe with almost everything i understand about uh, medicine that, that once you get this infection you're inoculated and we'll get a vaccine that will inoculate people at least partially the thing is is it going to be like the influenza vaccine where it's kind of good and it helps or is it going to be like the measles vaccine where it's like perfect and once you get it you're never going to get the infection again you know We'll have to find out. Yeah. But we're going to be living with this for a few more years. You think so? so okay. Yeah. So you think masks for a few more years? I think, yeah. And, you know, I, if I were to get my uh, Nostradamus hat out, as my Missouri accent, <laughs> I think that it'll probably be a vaccine that's a reasonable one out by this time next year. But I also believe that our leadership will have prepared for that moment so poorly that there will be nowhere to make the vaccine very well. And so we'll end up then having to sit on our hands and wait for this useful vaccine to actually be available. Sure. And uh, so it'll add another six months or eight months to that. So, you know, yeah. into the meat of 2021, I think, before we'll be able to open up 
restaurants without plastic visors and stuff, all that crap. And, yeah. you, know, you know, and I, I wonder how much we'll go back to the old way of doing things. We're going to be pretty conditioned to understand that we don't need to do things the way we did. I mean, I have countless friends who are working from home. Uh, they worked at the office partially because of efficiency, but a lot of the reason was because the bosses didn't trust their employees to work at home. And I, I just, I wonder how much we're going to go back to, uh, and we used to eat out way more than we probably needed to. I hope that doesn't... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Make your I hope this isn't too big of a downer. No, I mean it's, you know, it's real. <laughs> no, it's real and that's, you know, that's the reality of what we're in and I don't um, know. I mean, you probably changed your routines somewhat in, in some of this is some of these changes we've had to make aren't all that bad. I've I've gotten to hang out with my family and my neighbors and a lot more than I used to, uh, you know, and we, I'd get home and we'd be running to some stupid softball thing or yeah. whatever else. God bless your children. You, know? you don't mean it's stupid. Oh, you mean, yeah. oh, you guys have a softball <laughs> league, though, too. You guys are doing all sorts of craziness. Unless it's getting a college scholarship. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, <laughs> What's I vote. the point? Can of war. Okay, great. That sounds like the curmudgeon that I know you to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it is. It's different. We, we will see. I mean, and we're still not open where I work. So, you know, remains to be seen. I just, I'm coming to you live from my mother's basement and apparently I have overstayed my, my time allotment for the air conditioning to be turned off because it's very much on again. And so apologies, everyone, to the sound quality. <laughs> I didn't negotiate well <laughs> enough with my warden. So I should have figured that out sooner. But, um, and Dr. Mayer, I know that you are on call right now. So I just really appreciate you giving us your time. And, you know, do you want people to be able to get in touch with you? Because normally at the end we do like social media stuff, but I assume you kind of keep your life sort of private because you're not an actor yeah or... i'm not really yeah. set up for that but okay. you know if you had a uh if people sent you questions then uh, we could do a follow-up okay i'm i think they may so that would be awesome yeah i would love that okay great well we're gonna drop your checks now thank you so much for listening if you want to help us out wow i just i really i'm like so <laughs> distracted by the goddamn air conditioning i can't get through my outro if you want to help us out here at service from hell leave us a five-star review on itunes and tell your friends to listen it will help us reach more people that need to be schooled in the art of being kind it will be catharsis for those of us still working in the industry Remember, if you can't afford to tip, you can't afford to go out. So don't be garbage and be good to people. It's easier that way. Thank you so much, Nick. I really appreciate your time. This was lovely and you were super helpful. So yay, yay to all of this advice and information and stay up. You know, you're you're in the thick of it. So we appreciate your work. Oh, thank you very much. All right. It was fun. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Cheers. Good night, everybody. after that and it's all completely wrong it's just do the opposite you know like he like, was uh, was he making comments about coronavirus yeah he called it he downplayed it said it was nothing wow you know? i mean and, and for whatever reason people look up to him and he has a responsibility and you know if you don't know what to say you can actually say nothing what <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> but how do you think was it because it was just like oh I'm Dr. Oz and I got connected to Oprah. And so now I've got a show. Like, what do you think it was that got him? Like, why did people? I would imagine that was it, right? Yeah. I mean, he's also, he's a pretty, he's photogenic. Yeah, he's, he's charismatic. Yeah. I mean, he's got all the showbiz stuff. So, yeah. And he's got the credentials. I mean, so. does he, is he actually an MD? He was a, I don't know, a, a cardiothoracic surgeon or a oh, neurosurgeon damn. or some, some kind of high tech surgeon. He yeah. actually has the credentials. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, I don't know. Makes I think... it, which which makes him even worse. Yeah, because he knows better. <laughs> he knows better, you yeah. know? Ugh.
Well, it's even less forgivable with him than it would be for some jackass marketer, you yeah. know. I'm I'm but, surprised that he hasn't like been taken off of the uh what do they call it? Not off the board. What do they say when you're when you lose your MD credentials or when you can no longer practice, you're no longer I guess board certification isn't the only thing, but isn't there something Yeah. I don't know. I always said defrocked. Defro- but I don't know. Okay, that's <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> you've said it. So Yeah.